Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we continue our summer series on economic justice in the Bible with verses from Leviticus 19, a text that asks us to reflect and embody and channel God's holiness through the economy we create in the everyday world. What if our means of production, our land, our time, isn't absolutely ours in the way we owners imagine? We all know the commandment, thou shalt not steal, but what is fairly ours to begin with, and what constitutes stealing? And furthermore, what if this commandment is not just incumbent upon each individual? How do we create communities where theft doesn't happen, thereby enacting God's vision of a holy people? Spoiler alert. It's not an alarm system. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's a good, it's a beautiful day. It's a nice, clear morning. The birds are singing, but not like right next right to my microphone. I know. Do you hear them? Tweet, tweet. No. They're uh, safely... At a safe distance from me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's a good thing. I have a dilemma that I need some help with. Speaking Uh-oh. of birds. Yeah. Oh, bird dilemma. Good. A bird dilemma. It's not often that you have a bird dilemma. No. We are sitting on my front porch the other day, and there's a little there's a little bird um, building a, a sweet little nest on above my porch, like on the mm. eaves or whatever, whatever you call those mm-hmm. things. And we are in the process of getting ready to paint our house in like two weeks. And so I'm so like, poor little bird yeah. is building a nest and we're going to have to take it down us, presumably, in order to paint my house. Yeah. But should I just let it be what it is for like three weeks, two or three weeks and hope? Or should I, I feel like if I bust it down then the birds are going to be like, dang you, and then build it all over again. You just build it up again. Yeah. What should I do? You did not anticipate this dilemma. Did I did you? not anticipate this dilemma. I feel like there's probably something in the Torah about what to do in precisely yeah. these situations. The rabbis had to think about this. I mean, there are. That is sort of like a weird segue to to our text today. Although it it, <laughs> it doesn't answer your question of what you should do. Yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind is like, what is that? What is the like egg laying season like for birds? Yeah. Have we passed that already? Because my worry would be that they would have baby birds or eggs in the nest, and then you would have to disturb the nest, and that would be a danger to the baby birds. Yeah. I don't know where we are in the bird cycle. I guess I could check. About, <laughs> I guess I could check <laughs> where the Where are we in the bird triennial? Because my yeah, thought is, like, it doesn't take that long, right, for, for birds to lay eggs and then the eggs to hatch. So maybe between now and when they paint the house, they could actually get through that cycle, and yeah. then, you know, they could go build a nest someplace else if they wanted to. But it could also happen that they would just be in the middle of bird cycle. I don't. It turns out I don't know that much about the reproductive habits of birds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know there's, this comes as a surprise. 
there's so much to learn about the world. I know. Though we are aged, yeah. we, we are yet students. <laughs> yeah. No, there's always more to learn. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby, I feel like this is precisely the kind of question that would come up in the section of the biblical text that we're in. It doesn't come up in today's section, but like this. So so we're in the middle of Leviticus now. Yeah. We're going to read today from Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 18, and then verses 33 to 37. And there's just like such a, a strange to modern ears, I guess, combination of teachings and laws that are that are being passed down in this text. Yeah. And we're not going to read all of them, obviously, but it's, um, there's got to be baby birds in there. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, one of the things that I love about this text, and, you know, we should probably just remind folks that we're in week two of our special summer series on economic justice, which has nothing presumably mm-hmm. to do with birds, but no. you would be sort of surprised the number of things that start to get impinged on when you think about economic justice. Yes. But one of the things along the lines of what you're saying is, I mean, at the end of the day, this chapter is about what does it mean? You know, there's a command in verse two, you must be holy because I, God, am holy. And so yeah. one of the questions of this text is like, what does it mean to be holy? Like, what does it mean yeah. to live in the world in ways that are holy? And, you know, the concept of holiness in my tradition seems very ritualistic and sort of d- separated from regular life and like the thing you kind of do at church it's yeah. other other than us. And this text is saying you should be holy because I, God, am holy. And then there's a whole bunch of ways that you do that that are very much the way that you live your life. And so it's really interesting to think about like the way that I treat this bird. <laughs> you know, yeah. like if I think about that as am I manifesting God's holiness in the world or am I not? And that's the kind of thing it seems like Leviticus is sort of doing. Is that Does that seem like a reasonable way of getting at Leviticus? I mean, I think overall, yes. And, you know, as, as you know, Leviticus, like really any section of biblical text, is not a monolith. Yeah. And so the first part of Leviticus that's really talking about rituals that are taking place in the tabernacle, a lot of priestly laws, what do the priests wear, how do you, you know, perform sacrifices, all kinds of stuff like that, that is dealing with the idea of sort of how do we live with God's holiness in our midst but it's very focused on what, what the priests are supposed to do, what right. this particular class of people is supposed to be doing in order to be able to maintain that holiness in our midst. That stuff is understood to be by, a, by an author that we tend to refer to as P, the priestly source. And then when you get to the middle of Leviticus, where we are now, the attention switches a little bit, mm-hmm. and it is still about holiness, but it's not about the priests, and it's not so much about sacrifice. It's like not just the priests should be holy, and not just we need to live in a way that allows holiness to be in our midst, but we, like all of us individually, need to think about yeah. how we manifest holiness in the truly mundane parts of our lives. Yeah. You know, and and sometimes people read the first part of Leviticus and are like, this has nothing to do with me. Why is this in here? You know, this is, it, it, you know, it's it's not everyone's cup of tea. And I really get that. But then when they get to this part, they're like, whoa, this text is like all up in my business now. <laughs> and yeah. it is. It is yeah. all up in your business for better and for worse yes. in this section of uh, of the Torah. But this this stuff we're reading today is actually part of a Torah portion called Kadoshim, holy things, holy, oh, yeah. holy things. 
in the Jewish tradition. And you're exactly right. It's really trying to think like what what does it look like to to be holy in the world, to not just do whatever, not yeah. do whatever is convenient, not do whatever you feel like, but to kind of elevate elevate the everyday. Yeah. Yeah. So this section of Leviticus that you're referring to, I mean, if you very roughly, the priestly part of Leviticus, the P part is 1 to 16, and the mm-hmm. holiness code, as it's often called, is 17 to 27. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's always some mixing yeah, some and editing and redacting there, yeah, yeah. And, and all sorts of things like that. And so the holiness code, which picks up in 17, and, you know, and I love the way you're talking about that. And there's everything in this text from economic practices, which we'll be focusing Mm -hmm. on, to how you plant your fields and to how Mm -hmm. you make cloth and to what you wear and Mm -hmm. sexual ethics and all of these different kinds of things that are just part of the way that we live our lives. And, you know, parts of this text are deeply, I like the way that you said it. You didn't say for better or for worse. You said for better and for worse. Because this text really is all up in your business, it's as you put it. all up in your business. And you yeah. you would probably not, I don't know, I was going to say you probably would not take this text on full force as like, I'm going to live by every single thing that's in this text. Mm-hmm. But I guess there probably are people who would do that. Yeah. 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 There definitely are people who would do that. Yeah. This this section of text in the Jewish tradition, not just this section, it's understood to have two different types of laws. One are called mishpatim, which are, you know, judgments that are things that make sense to us. The things that make sense to us. Like, it makes sense that that we understand the rationale for that law. And then chukim, which don't really make sense to us. Like, why do we—why kashrut? I don't know. Like, (laughs) because. (laughs) Because God said do it, that's why you do it. And different, at least in the Jewish tradition, different branches of Judaism deal with those differently. You know, I'm— Working in the in a conservative uh, world right now, conservative Judaism, not like conservative politicalness, where when there are hukim that are not morally offensive to us, we like try to try to do it, and when there are hukim that we're like, you know, that's actually that's actually a problem, and we think that goes against the broader teachings of the Torah, mm-hmm. then we don't do it. Oh, that's interesting. If you're more on the the sort of liberal reform side of things, maybe you're not so interested in any laws that don't have a rationale in your mind. And if you're more on the orthodox side, then you feel an obligation to to live these laws really as maximally as you can. Yeah. That's really interesting. You know, in the Christian tradition, there's often people make kind of a distinction between purity laws and ethical laws. Mm -hmm. And they think that Jesus kind of more or less abrogated the purity law, which is, Mm -hmm. I mean, theologically questionable anyway, but, and then, but did not abrogate the ethical law. And so you can make a distinction this way. One of the things that's helpful to me, and if, I mean, if you just read Leviticus 19 all the way through is these kinds of things are actually not that easily separated in my mind, Mm -hmm. at least in the, in the actual text. Like there, there are all kinds of things that are being put all together not clear which is exactly purity and which is exactly ethics. And it's all under the rubric of be holy. And so, I mean, I, I just say all of that to say sometimes Christians have a little bit of a hand wavy way of saying we, we follow this rule, but not that one. Yeah. And I think there's a, maybe there's a more intentional way that, that one could get at it in terms of, you know, making some, some choices about which parts of the Torah we take on and and leave, but not just sort of saying, well, hand wave, that's purity or whatever. Right, right. 
All right, Bobby, should we get started? I think so. So we are reading from Leviticus chapter 19. The first chunk of verses we're going to look at is 9 through 18, but we'll sort of subdivide that as we go. I am reading from the NRSV. No, I'm not reading from the NRSV. <laughs> I was going to say, well, I, that's different for you. <laughs> I am reading from the NJPS. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, the Lord, am your God. Okay, most, well, I guess I shouldn't assume who of our listeners might have a field. I don't have a field. I don't have any, I don't have any harvest. Yeah, can no. you can you describe what you think the text is requiring here? Yeah, no, that's a great way to start. I think that there are two separate things that are being uh, commanded. Well, with related relation to the field and then restated with relation to the mm-hmm. vineyard. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so the way that I'm imagining it is I'm a farmer. I've got a field that I need to either designate like an end of my field or the border around it. I don't know quite which way you would think about it. And I'm going to leave part of my produce around the edges. I'm going to leave it, not going to touch it at all, so that people can come. Here it's stated as the poor and the immigrant can come and gather food for themselves. Yeah. So that's one, one bit of it is don't, don't harvest all the way to the edges of your field. Leave some around the edges for poor people. The other thing I think that's here is in the CEB, which I'm reading, it says, don't gather up every remaining bit of your harvest. I think in the JPS it was, mm-hmm. don't glean. Yeah, don't gather the gleanings. Yeah. And so I think what that's saying is, as, as you are gathering up your produce for your field, you are inevitably going to drop some on the ground. Mm-hmm. And you could go back and pick that up and like do a final sweep through and mm-hmm. make sure you got every last bit. And this text is saying, don't do that. If you drop some, just let it be. And mm-hmm. then people who are immigrant and poor can come through the rest of the field and they can gather up what's been dropped. So there's mm-hmm. the sort of border somewhere around the edge that's completely left for the poor. And then mm-hmm. there's the stuff that you gather in the middle where what you drop is left for the poor. Is that the way that you read that? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, I was reading the other day that this command not to pick up the things that have fallen as you've, have you, as you've been harvesting um, is one of the commandments that you can't do intentionally. I mean, you can, but you can't, you're not supposed to throw things on the ground. Uh. Like you're not supposed to drop things on purpose. It's just, if you drop things, you're not supposed to pick them up. Oh, that's really interesting. That was, it was an interesting nuance. So you can take care not to drop things. Yeah. But you just, once they're dropped, you don't go back and get them. Yeah. Bobby, there are a lot of ways to ensure that the hungry have access yeah. to food. Why? What do you think about this way in particular? Like, why, why doesn't it say, you know, harvest your field and then put out some buckets of food? Now, that's a really important question, Amy. And I, I mean, I don't know for sure. The, the way that I have this imagined in my head is the edge of the field is sort of, you know, part of the field that's sort of a way. Mm-hmm. So there is, it's not public exactly. So people can go and sort of have their, we were talking about human dignity last time. Yeah. People yeah. can go and they can gather without it all being like, here, I'm giving you stuff. Right. And then I think the other piece that's there is 
you know, you're not picking it for people and giving it to them. You are leaving it there so that the produce of the land is available to everyone. There's still some labor that's going to go into it on the part of the person gathering. So this isn't handouts exactly. This is simply not exploiting the productivity of the land to the full extent, recognizing that there is extra and letting those people who can go and gather it, gather it. That's how I get at that. How do you, what do you see there? I love those thoughts and, and they, I think they're, they're right on. I mean, there's some element of, I don't know, dignity or autonomy or something in saying like, just leave it for people to, to, to do the work for themselves and have sort of the fruits of their own, their own labor harvesting the field, even if they don't have a field right now. Yeah. And I do think it also is a, is a reminder, I think, as you were getting at that the land is not the the land and the produce of the land are not yours just yes. because you own the field you know and that's it's a really hard thing to remember you yeah. know like we we want the field to be as productive as possible and we feel i don't know like responsible in some ways for getting as much produce from the land as we can yeah and this i don't know it just feels like a almost like a psychological correction. Yeah. Like uh, that's that's not actually the goal that you reap all the produce that could possibly be reaped from yeah. this land. I think that's so important, Amy. And that, especially that point, I mean, all of that was important. The, the, the notion that it's not yours, I think is crucial to this text because, you know, there's mm-hmm. a way of saying this stuff that I have gathered that I planted that's on my land, I'm giving it to you. That. Out of the goodness of my heart. Yeah. Yeah. And you should be grateful to me. Like that's establishing a certain kind of relationship between There's a power dynamic. Yeah. If the perspective is that edge of that field is not mine, right? I am forbidden from gathering that stuff. It's just not, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the poor and the immigrant. Now it feels different because that's not that I gave that to you. That was just this part of my field is is for people who need to gather, to gather. And it doesn't belong to me at all. I think that's super important. Yeah. The other thing you were saying that was, you know, I was trying to frame it in a capitalist framework where, Mm -hmm. you know, what you want to do is maximize profits at every turn. You want to minimize inefficiencies and maximize profit potential. And this law is cutting it against that in multiple ways. One of them is you're not gathering as much as you could. So I am intentionally making my uh, productivity margins lower. And secondly, is I'm letting the people that I could sell my food to go get it for free. <laughs> so not only is my field not producing as much as it could, but I'm also reducing the, the market. The out market. There. Yeah. And so it cuts twice against me if my goal is to make profit. It is a highly, I think it was impractical in the ancient world. It is highly impractical in a capitalist society where, you know, you're undermining your own capacity yeah. to sell, both produce and to sell. Yeah, I try to, you know, it's interesting is, again, like a person, I don't have any experience growing food in this way. So it's a pretty abstract idea to me. And I've been trying to think about, like, how this ideal would fit into my context. And the, the, uh, I don't know, metaphor, extension, analogy that keeps coming to my mind is how I allocate my time. Oh, yeah. You know, if I if I really pack every minute of my schedule and say like, I, this is, I'm scheduled. I have something, somewhere to be and some kind of deliverable to produce. And then there's no space for just the things that 
you, you the things that are needed in the world that you encounter, I don't know, encounter yeah. in the course of your day. I'm very bad at that. I, I do overschedule my days. Yeah. That question of how do you modernize this, I think is so important. And you know, the, the cop-out way of saying it is this only applies to fields. And so since I don't have a field, it yeah. doesn't apply to me. Mm-hmm. But I love the way you're thinking about it and, you know, trying, you know, I'm thinking about these restaurants that have, you know, they charge people, they might charge some people like actually a little more than it would actually cost them. And then they just have food that's available or they invite people to come in and pay for a meal. Like, yeah, just, they, they undermine their own profit margins by making food available to people who don't have food. Yeah. I'm not saying this very well, but practices like that where you say, okay, like I'm making enough money selling to mm-hmm. one set of folks. And so I'm going to make some available to other people. You know, that's, that's sticking to the food theme. You know, if you're, yeah, I don't, I think everybody who is, you know, for whom this commandment might have some relevance ought to be thinking about like, okay, well, what's my version of the field and making right. sure that I'm not trying to maximize my own benefit when there are others yeah. who need it. Yeah. I just wanted to come back to say that, like, going back to read verse two, which is not part of our uh, lectionary text, but Mm. um, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Like, what we're talking about in terms of gleaning fields and leaving behind and all of that is exactly about being holy. It's not just about some sort of abstract ethics. It's about holiness, and it's being holy because God is holy. So God's holiness is manifested in the world by whether... You and I do or do not do what is being commanded about our productivity. Yep. All up in your business, Bobby. All up in your business. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Should we continue? Let's do. Okay. I'm picking up in verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal deceitfully or falsely with one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your fellow. You shall not commit robbery. The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. You shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. I feel like there are a couple of different ways to get in here, but but let me ask you first, Bobby, about the juxtaposition of verse 11 with what came before it. So I, I think one way to read this is, as, as Kadoshim tends to do, as this section of text tends to do, is put all these laws like just sort of back to back to back. Yeah. And it's not always clear that there's any relationship directly. It's just that they all are under this umbrella of this is what holiness looks like in a human life. Yeah. But there are some Jewish thinkers who directly connect the idea of not stealing with the imperative to leave parts of your field. Yeah. Do you see a connection there? I am not sure. I think probably just reading it on my own, I was inclined to read it sort of every time you read, I am the Lord, you sort of like yeah, reset the right. thought. The end, right. <laughs> but now that you're suggesting that, I see, I'm seeing it very clearly. And and I really like it. I'm, I'm curious what the, can you, can you just say like how the rabbis connected and then I can see if that's the way I'm connecting it? Yeah, yeah. So, so there are two different rabbinic strands here. One um, from a thinker named Ibn Ezra, who says, who who says that to glean these parts of your field that it's saying you should not is is stealing. Yeah. 
Right. Like just to sort of put a fine point on yeah. the idea that we put out there before that like you don't really own, own yes. your land and its produce. So it's not actually a choice whether you do this or not. And if you take it, you're stealing. Yeah. So that's one one idea. And then the other is that, you know, that the verbs here, we can talk more about this later if we want to, but the verbs here are plural. Like all of you as a as yeah. a community shall not steal or deal deceitfully with one another. And so there's another Jewish thinker named Kara who says, if you don't do this, if you don't leave the edges of your field, you are basically forcing someone else in the community to steal. And that, as a community, it is your job to make sure stealing is not happening and you're setting someone up to have to steal. I love that. That first one was how I was connecting it. So this does not actually belong to you. And so if you try to keep it, then you're stealing. That second one is so rich. My goodness. About, so stealing is not simply something that bad people do. Stealing is something that people do out of necessity. And if you don't observe the generosity that is commanded, you are setting people up to steal. That is blowing my mind. I mean, I think it fits right in with with a lot of the things that that you have brought up in many texts, not just in economic justice texts, but the way, like there, there is sort of a a level on the individual that we can read these things. And then there is a level of like the community has to function in a certain, yeah. the community has to function in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. And this really brings that to the, the community level. That is absolutely right. You know, the other thing that was going through my head as you were reading was that this language is, I mean, we're in the 10 commandments right here is what we are. Don't yes. steal. Don't yes. lie. Don't yes. desecrate God's name. Like there's, Three commandments right there. Yep. And, you know, like one of the things that I always joke around when I'm uh, reading the Ten Commandments with my students is like the Ten Commandments, like you can pretty much get through your life without breaking any of them. If you like, mm-hmm. I have never murdered anybody. Like there's a, there's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of them that you don't have to try very hard. And I am <laughs> realizing that that's just like what this text is saying is no, 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 Williamson. <laughs> like you're thinking in too big a terms. Like when I say don't profane God's name or when I say don't lie, what I mean is don't try to like finagle your finances. So it looks mm-hmm. like you're more generous than you are. Like this is bringing the 10 commandments down and saying those things like in everything that you do, even in terms of how you glean your field, there is a yeah. potential to break three commandments right there, even though all you did was glean all the way to the edge of your field. Yeah. That's oh, intense. I, I love that. I love that. Because I was gonna, one of the things I was going to ask you was how, does, how do these commandments hit you differently here? Yeah. And, and what I hear you saying is that this is basically like an explication of yes. those commandments like this is this is the commentary like what does it mean to not steal here is what it means and it's actually not so easy yeah so like i can go through my life without actually you know snatching someone's purse and running away with it but if you start to think like did i consume things that were not rightfully mine and that's going to be stealing now oh my goodness yeah swearing false like i was always taught like don't take the lord's name in vain was like don't swear like don't say bad words <laughs> uh, which I have which I actually really struggle with <laughs> yeah <laughs> but this is saying like if I like nobody knows if I go back and pick up the stuff I dropped in my field so That's if right. I say no I promise I swear I didn't do it 
Like that is not just like a little white lie. That is breaking a Ten Commandment. Mm. Or to say like, yeah, I love God, but, uh, you know, God commanded this and I'm not doing it. Like now suddenly that is breaking a, breaking a commandment. Yeah. This is very, very much intense. Yeah. <laughs> it is intense. Yeah, it is intense. This, um, the ending of this section, I know we used to have other places in here to talk, but what you were saying pushed my mind to this, you shall fear your God. Yeah. And there's a, a Jewish thinker, more modern, named Nechama Leibowitz, who says, whenever this phrase is used, it refers to something that is entrusted to the conscience of the individual. Mm. Because only you know whether you have yeah. done something in good faith. It is yeah. unlikely that someone is going to be taken to court yeah. because they have gone back and picked up the yeah. gleanings of their field. Yeah. But so it has that little extra, like, you are do you. Yeah, it's an internal thing. Like if if you have this sense of awe in your relationship to God, you know, awe and fear are really, really close, (laughs) really close, just two sides of the same coin there. But if you truly believe in the grandeur of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God, that should motivate you. That should motivate you to do this. You shouldn't need a, a court to do that. I love that, Amy. And it fits so nicely. Like when I, the first time I read verse 14, don't insult a deaf person. Don't put an obstacle in front of a blind person. Yeah. I was like, this seems like pretty obvious to me that these are bad things to do. But what you're saying there, I think, fits really nicely. Like helps me understand what that's about. Because if you insult a deaf person, I think this text is saying they would never know, right? They because they can't hear know. what you said. Nope. If you put something in front of a blind person, they don't know that you did that. And so these are things that ostensibly you could get away with. And no one would ever be the wiser. And what this is saying is exactly that. God knows that you did that. So just because the person whom you are treating poorly can't identify you or maybe even recognize Mm -hmm. that they've been mistreated Mm -hmm. uh, does not mean that it doesn't count. Yeah. To me, that that gets real deep real fast for all the reasons that we're talking about, that especially in a modern society where we're separated from each other in all of these ways and like the people that we're you know, depriving of their livelihoods are often very remote to us, have no idea yeah. who we are. Right. Parts and of they, don't know what we're, they don't know what we're doing. Yeah. There may yeah. be in other parts of the world, exactly. Yeah. And just because they don't know what we're doing doesn't mean that we're not responsible to them because God is watching. That's exactly right. Because God is watching. It's a little creepy. <laughs> it is a little creepy. Yeah. But the Torah is not above using some fear, some it fear if that's if that's what it takes. It is not. As you were talking, I was uh I was thinking a lot of things, but but one of them is that this idea in particular of not putting a stumbling block before the blind, the rabbis expand tremendously on mm. to to basically to the level of like don't take advantage of your relative privilege and someone else's relative vulnerability. Yeah. So like don't don't tempt people if you know they're likely to be tempted by a particular thing, do what you can to not have that thing wind up in their path or don't give bad advice to someone that you know isn't going to know any better. They're just yeah. going to do whatever you tell them to do or don't. You know, like any way that you could possibly guide someone down the wrong path. Like there are any number of ways that we do yeah. this that could do this in the world. That, that you're, you should fear your God. Yeah. 
don't do that. I love I. I was gonna say I love that, but I don't love that. <laughs> I don't love that. Now I'm thinking about my own life and all of the ways in which it is possible for me to run afoul of that by taking advantage of people to my own ends, and they would never even know that I did it, and that, yeah. Our, I mean, as we have said from the beginning, our world, our nation, our communities are not set up to make this easy. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, even just thinking about this is such a dumb example, but like those various like offshore savings accounts and tax schemes or like loopholes, whatever. Yeah. And when you know everyone else is, those are available to everyone. And anyone can do them, and many people are doing them. It start. We can convince ourselves that it's fair. It's only right. fair that we do them too. Yeah. And I feel like this text really calls out, like, is it though? Like, yeah. <laughs> but is yeah. it? Is yeah. it? Because the way that I rationalize stuff like that is, if I don't take advantage of them, yeah. somebody's going to take advantage of me. Yes. Yes. And I, so yes. I need to do the things to keep myself from being taken advantage of, even if other people don't really know how it all works. Yeah. And this text is saying, no. I mean, you might get taken advantage of, right? You might derive some benefit from doing some of these things, but that's not what it means to be holy as God is holy. Yeah. The one other thought I wanted to throw out here is in terms of insulting the deaf. And I think you're exactly right. That question of like, they can't even hear you. Like they're, Maybe they're not even hurt by whatever happened because they don't even know. Like They're blissfully oblivious to whatever you've said. And another way to think about that is sort of what what it does to the sense of human dignity within the community or what it does even to the speaker. Like what it does to yourself to speak so basely about someone else. That, That to me goes almost to this this more abstract idea of holiness, you know, that that our our words really can can elevate us as a people or not. Yeah. And that's that's real. Yeah. I think that's real. I think yeah. that's real. And this is kind of a sim- silly example of that, but you know, when you're a parent, there's lots of stuff you have to like clean up and pick up and put away and like all the things that you really somebody else ought to be doing that and I have really been concentrating for the last little bit about doing that joyfully instead of grumpily because it affects my relationships with my family when I have like I'm picking up after you all the freaking time Mm -hmm. uh and in ways that affect my actual relationships with my kids and then also in ways that affect my internal disposition towards them and I think, you know, I, if I mutter about it quietly to myself, they're never going to hear. Right. But, they're, but at some deep level, they're going to know and I'm going to know that, th- that things right. aren't exactly, you know, right. And so thinking about, like, how do I reframe that so that I'm not saying things to myself that I wouldn't say, like, in, to them directly. So it's been a challenge. I think that's a great example. And it's so – and it's – it's such a like holiness code example because it's yeah. just like this is the on the ground day to day. This yeah. is like boots on the ground. What does it look like? Yeah. And it is don't mutter mean things about your kids to yourself because it changes <laughs> yeah. you. Yes. And it changes like the air in the room. It does. It absolutely does. It's hard though. Hard though. 
Is there anything else you want to say about this piece? The only other thing that's really there, I think, is that not withholding laborers' pay, which we also saw Mm, in Deuteronomy. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. The fact that that here is related in verse 13 to oppressing and robbing. Yep. Which I think we've talked about as well, but uh, a little bit, you know, about the gleaning the field. But that sense of unjust unjust payment practices, whatever that might look like in our context, that is is itself robbery. It's a violation yeah. of, of one of the commandments. I, think, I yeah. think that's worth noting here again. Yes, yes, yes. I'm glad you drew that out. And I think even the fact that we've, we just saw that text last week, like that idea yeah. last week, you yeah. know? And so it's, it, it's kind of nice to see it reinforced here. Like it's not that these, this idea of economic justice is totally scattershot between the different sources that we have. Some of them have different focus points than others, but you do start to get a, a foundational picture that, that covers all of them. Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Room Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on the Bible and economic justice. Amy and I are grateful to you for being a part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's special episode. All righty. I'm going to read the last chunk of this. Last chunk of the first chunk. Okay. You ready? Okay, yeah. so I'm picking up in verse 15. You shall not render an unfair decision. Do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Judge your kinsmen fairly. Do not deal basely with your countrymen. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your kinsfolk in your heart. Reprove your kinsmen, but incur no guilt because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your countrymen. Love your fellow as yourself. I am the Lord. Mm-mm-mm. All right, let's begin at the be- let's begin at the beginning. There's there's a lot of great stuff in here. So, Bobby, I almost was starting to feel from the previous text like there was a sort of uh, ethic of favoring the the poor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we have this explicit line in 15, do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Yeah. Judge your kinsmen fairly. Yeah. How do you hold those how do you hold those things together or how does this line change your understanding of what's being asked of us? Yeah, no, that's exactly the right question and I kind of I had a very similar experience reading it. And you know, from my own sort of internal way of living in the world is I am much more likely to show deference to the poor, yeah. at least less like my ideal self, uh, than, than I am to, like, I'm pretty hard on people who are people of means in ways mm-hmm. that I try to be not as hard on people who are poor. And, you know, what this is saying is just be fair. And I'm yeah. like, yes, <laughs> like that, that is exactly right. And so then I went back and said, well, why does it seem like all the rest of this text is sort of privileging people who are poor? And I think the answer is because society tends to be so skewed toward people who are wealthy that treating people who are poor fairly seems like privileging them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so 
if in fact we were treating everyone equitably, it wouldn't it wouldn't feel quite the same way. That's so interesting. So like this is what fairness looks like. Yeah. Fairness is don't glean to the edge of your field. That's fair. We don't do that. And so when you say glean to the edge of your field, that feels right. like privileging people who are poor. Well, that's not fair. Right. Right. But this text has got a different sort of sense of what very interesting. Fair is. But then I think if you know, if you gleaned if you left your field and then people who needed to eat that food then started over consuming your field, like taking stuff that didn't belong to them, then the judgment needs to be against people who like take advantage of that yeah. system. Yeah. So like there does come a point where the judgment goes the other way. But we it seems to me like we are as human societies, we tend to be far leaning in the other direction. So we would have yeah. to wildly overcorrect in order to get to that point. I don't know. What do you think about that? That's so interesting. And, you know, I, I don't want to go way into this, but it's making me think of the the conversation that, that happens between the, the phrase Black Lives Matter and the phrase All Lives Matter and sort mm-hmm. of the context in which yes. in which they're happening. You know, what what is our baseline understanding yeah. that is reflected in society and what needs correction? Yeah. You know? That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I love, I love what you're saying. And, you know, I feel like I've told this story once before on this podcast, maybe not, but I, I was on a jury once. Actually, it was that like bonus, the extra whatever in case someone from the jury I didn't get to render a decision, but I sat through the whole case. And um, it was a robbery case. And I remember very clearly starting to have this feeling like bubble up in my gut that like this person who was on trial just got dealt such a crappy hand, Bobby. Like the things that he was having to deal with in his life and the pressures upon him to make things work financially for his family. And it just, it was so, he was in such an unfair position in the world. And it seemed that he had committed this robbery. Yeah. And I really felt like tied up about what to, Yeah. what does that mean for me as a juror? Like yeah. what, how do I think about that? And and this verse came to my mind as a sort of, mm. You almost in the same way that like just when someone is poor, you don't just give them something like they they come and glean from the field themselves. Like, no, we still have to. The question here is, was a robbery committed? And so in this case, if you believe the robbery was committed, you have to say the robbery was committed and you have to deal with all the other stuff, too, like all the societal stuff, too. But that you can't solve the problem with unjust decision-making, you yeah. know, that there still has to be, has to be honesty in the, in the justice system. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't help anyone to, to abrogate that process. I think that's exactly right, Amy. And what you're saying is so hard and so important. And, you know, this, this happens all the time at Mercy Church where people get in trouble for things that they were just put in a position where they didn't really have any good choices. And yeah. so they made a bad choice. Yeah. And that's the way we talk with, you know, when we talk with them, we say that you, that was a bad choice and you had a raw hand and that was a bad, you know, and I think that's exactly right. I think, and I think that you cannot separate that from the second half of verse 17, rebuke your fellow Israelites strongly. So you don't become responsible for his sin. When I read that, that is about 
that's about rebuking the people who are creating the situation that left your person with no good choices. Mm. If you glean, if you did not glean to the edge of your field, that person would not have had to steal and you wouldn't have had to render that judgment. So, okay, I'm going to render that judgment against that person, but I'm going to rebuke you Mm -hmm. landowner because you're, you are creating the situation in which people have bad choices. That's all they can make. So Mm -hmm. we can't just do the one without the other. Yeah. We've got to do them both together. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly don't think that this text envisions any lack of love and compassion and standards for the people who have privilege in society. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's both. It's both and. But the, and the goal is if we could actually get our, get ourselves to live generously, then we wouldn't have to make bad choices like, like that one. How do you understand this idea or the connection between reprove your kinsman, Mm -hmm. but incur no guilt because of him or, and incur no guilt because of him or. Yeah. The CEB's translation, rebuke your fellow Israelites strongly. So you don't become responsible Mm -hmm. for his sin. Mm. Oh, that's a, that is a, there's a lot of interpretation in that translation. There is a lot of interpretation in that translation. If I follow that line of thinking, where I come out is this thing that we talk about quite often, which is that we rise and fall as a community. Yeah. And yeah. so if we allow people to take advantage of others in the community, and I think this is true of whether the person is somebody who is wealthy or somebody who is poor, like we yeah. were just talking about, if we let that go then the, the community becomes unstable and we're going to be guilty for it. I think we're going to be guilty mm-hmm. in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. I also think we're going to be guilty because a society that gets out of whack like that is sort of internally dissolving, yeah. problematic. Yeah. And so we need to, when we see people who are taking advantage in, in whatever way, we need to be clear with them about that so mm-hmm. that God does not judge us, but also so that society doesn't sort of come apart at the seams in yeah. ways that are going to bring us down with it. Is that where you yeah. go with that, or do you go somewhere different? I, I do. Well, uh, yes. And it's making me think back to, the, you know, with the singulars and the plurals and the verbs. Yeah, yeah. I also think of this on a on a personal level where if you don't— speak your mind when you see something that you genuinely think is wrong. Mm-hmm. I feel like it 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 lives in you somewhere. Mm. Like that feeling towards that person. Like this is almost going back to the ethics of speech that we talked about and not mm-hmm. insulting the the deaf. Like and and then it comes out sideways. Like it it also causes a societal breakdown, a different maybe type mm-hmm. of societal breakdown, but it it pulls apart all the trust that it's trying to develop between people within, you know, that these texts of Le- Leviticus. I feel this saying, like, you have to say the hard things. Yeah. You have to say the hard things. If you really believe that something that's happening is wrong, you have to say, you have to say something. I think that's exactly right, Amy. And the line that's in there, do not stand by while your neighbor's blood is shed. Mm-hmm. Like, on the one hand, that's an extreme example, although you can think of cases where people literally watch crimes happen in front of them and don't yeah. intervene or say anything or call the police or anything. If you then think beyond just 
literal bloodshed to like mm-hmm. violence is enacted in various ways, both physical and emotional and economic. And you don't say anything. Now the bystander effect becomes a sort of deeper, uh, more pervasive kind of issue. And I, I think that's exactly right. When you see something that is unfair, unjust, someone is being harmed, you've, you've got to say something. If, if you want to live in this kind of Yeah, this system requires it. This yeah. system requires it. Mm-hmm. The last thing that's in this text for me in this little section is, you know, that line in 1918, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Mm, yeah. That gets taken up in the New Testament. And sometimes Jesus says it, sometimes uh, a legal expert says it, but it becomes sort of like an ethic. Love your neighbor yeah. as yourself. I know it is in, in Judaism as well. For so sure. Love God, yes. love neighbor. That's There's the Torah. Everything else yeah. is commentary. Yeah. When you put it in this context of all these things we've just been talking about, and then you're like, oh yeah, by the way, that's what love your neighbor means. Put such a different inflection on it than just sort of in the abstract, like love your neighbor, you know, like you should have positive yeah. thoughts about people. Like, Right. It's not just not positive thoughts is. about your neighbor. Yeah. yeah. It's about ensuring justice and fairness and equity. Yeah. Hold, like loving people by rebuking them. Mm-hmm. Loving people by ensuring that they are taken care of. Like, it means all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, one of the episodes we did on on Philippians, I think, we were talking about what would it look like for, for people to pursue knowledge and insight in order yeah. to increase love in the yeah. world. And I feel like that's that's what this text is to me. Yeah. Like. What does it actually, what does it look like to love your neighbor? It is not whatever you feel like. It, you yeah. know, it's not wave at them and smile. Like, that's fine. That's good. Do that. But this is the kind of, this is the kind of study, I think, that, that can actually increase love. Yeah. We sometimes contrast love God and love neighbor. This mm. text is one of the ones that I think re- would not reasserts that these are, ex- these are exactly the same thing. Same. That Love your right. neighbor. I am the Lord. Like that right. is together. And right. remembering that this text started out with be holy because I am the Lord and I am holy. Like these kinds of ways of conducting ourselves with each other is exactly a reflection of God's holiness, which is exactly a way of loving God. So they're not different things at all. Yeah. They're one and the same. Yep. I feel like we could talk about this forever, but we have one more little bit of text to read. Is there anything else you want to add before we do that. I think let's read this last section. Okay. So the last section is still in chapter 19, um, verses 33 through 37. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I, the Lord, am your God. You shall not falsify measures of length, weight, or capacity. You shall have an honest balance, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hin. I, the Lord, am your God who freed you from the land of Egypt. You shall faithfully observe all my laws and all my rules. I am the Lord. <sighs> mm, I just love it so much. Okay. What, uh, so what are they getting at with the stranger thing here? Like, is this just someone you don't know? Be nice to someone you don't know? The CEB's translation is 
when an immigrant lives in your land with you, you mm. must not cheat them. Any immigrant I who lives with you. I think that gets closer to it. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew there, as you well know, is from the root gur, which is a sojourner, which typically is a reference to someone who is not Israelite, who is from some other place, but who mm-hmm. has come to reside amongst the Israelites. So it's not the, it's not the foreigner who is in their place back in their home country. It's the person who is not an Israelite, but has come to live among us, among you. Yeah. Uh, so the, I think the, immig- I, for me, immigrant captures that pretty well, or yeah. like a resident alien maybe is yeah. the sort of yeah. legal term for it. Yeah. Someone who is like not part of the dominant system Yeah. and is vulnerable in various ways. They probably yeah. don't have land. They may have a language barrier. They don't have they may or may not have sort of family or a clan of people around who are who are helping to care for them, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah. I like that way of expanding it, Amy, and especially when you think about it in terms of like the American context or a modern context instead of the context of ancient Israel. And so it's not simply people who don't necessarily have citizenship status, mm-hmm. but the way you're sort of framing it is people who are not going to be naturally kind of looked out for by the dominant culture in whatever place they happen to be, even if they have technically they have citizenship status or or whatever. I was just, this is such a dumb example, but it it popped into my head while you were talking is I know that, you know, when we were in graduate school, there were some groups of folks who had all gone to the same prestigious other schools or, or, and, and there was this like almost underground network of you know, it's like the the proverbial boys clubs or the proverbial, yeah. you know, whatever, where if you're on the inside, you just have access to a lot of stuff. And if you're on the outside, you might yeah. not, not even know there's an inside that you don't have access to. But it really matters. Yeah, it does. In all, in all kinds of ways, there's an insider's club that gets people yeah. and an outsider status. And we can, you know, expand that all the way down. And this is saying... When you find yourself as the insider, you need to extend all of these kinds yes. of expressions of love to the outsider. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it calls upon their experience as strangers in Egypt here? Yeah, I love that. And and all through this text, it's been saying, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, which to me is this really intense refrain when you read this text out loud. Yes. And then at the very end, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt And so it's, you used to be sojourners. You used to be immigrants. You used to be foreigners. And I looked out for you. So to me, there's all kinds of pieces to that. One is God is the God who looks after the people who are on the outside. And so I did that for you. And so now, because you are my people, you need to do that for others. Mm -hmm. There is also a sense of drawing on your own experience. Mm -hmm. So one reason to treat people well is because you yourself know what it's like to not be treated well. You were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And so you can't now turn around and do that to somebody else. You got you to gotta be better than that. One of the things that's interesting to me here is, I mean, just trying to think in terms of like timelines. Mm-hmm. But eventually, this text is going to be read and implemented or at least instructed to people who were not themselves ever enslaved in Egypt. And so it reads different if you're the generation envisioned in the text, original text in which you're just at Sinai, you were just in Egypt like, you know, 50 days ago or whatever, versus 
a hundred years or 500 years or a thousand years or 3000 years later, you're still supposed to call back on this experience, even though you yourself may never have had it. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's really interesting in this text. I don't always know what to do with that though. Yeah. You know, I've read a, a theory. Oh, actually I texted you about this theory late at night. Cause I was so on fire about it <laughs> right around Passover. Remember that, that um, there were, Okay, here's the point of it. I'm not going to go into the whole theory. There are places in the biblical text where it's calling upon the memory of being a stranger, a gare in Egypt. And that memory might be before slavery. Like there was a time when the Israelites were living really well in Egypt. And the Egyptians cared for them. The Israelites had nowhere else to go. There was a famine in the land, and they were able to live well and fully among the Egyptians. And there's not really a hint that there was a problem. And then there are other places in the biblical text where it refers to slavery or being freed or, you know, that kind of thing. And so the the theory is that those two stories might not necessarily know each other. That's a, we can save that for a rainy day. But I think it's interesting here that the first time it's mentioned in 34, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Like that to me is a, a call to empathy. Like, you were strangers, you know what it's like to be a stranger, whether we can say that was a good experience before slavery happened, or we say, you know what it's like for that to be a bad experience. It's it's pulling on empathy. And then the last time it, it mentions it, the second time, it's referring to being freed from the land of Egypt. Yeah. Which to me is much more sort of as you were saying that refrain, like, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, like... At the end of the day, you owe me and I set the rules. Like, I'm not really like you are indebted to me and I'm telling you how it's going to be and this is how it's going to be. And that's why you have to do it. I know that like a lot of people are kind of resistant to that idea, but that's what I see at the end of this. Like, yeah, you would you'd still be there if I hadn't brought you out. So you need to do what I what I tell you to do, whether it makes sense to you or not. I really like that, Amy, both both parts of that. And, you know, what you're making me think of with this idea, like you were in Egypt and it was fine. And then you were in Egypt as slaves. Yeah. And, you know, then, you, then you're thinking about, well, how did you actually get from the one to the other? Mm-hmm. And the way that it happens, as you well know, is that there is a crisis in which there is a food shortage. And so people do what they have to do in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And so they start to um, sell, to give Pharaoh their... Mm-hmm. livestock and they give mm-hmm. fair their land and mm-hmm. they give fair their money and then mm-hmm. suddenly now we're indebted and we're enslaved and so one of the things that I think is happening here about you got to do it the way I'm telling you to do it is because this text is aware that everything can work just fine when things are good mm-hmm. but there is going to be a crisis mm-hmm. and how you conduct yourself in the crisis is going to be what determines the relationship that you have with other people yeah. yep and when you are in crisis, you are going to look out for yourself. You are going to take advantage of what you can take advantage of. That's the way people tend to be. And so I am God and I am telling you, you mm-hmm. cannot do that because you all got to look out for each other or we're just going to end up back in a situation of enslavement again. Yeah. I mean, you might be the enslaver this time, you yeah. know, but that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for a, a society where people are treated justly and fairly and equitably and with dignity. Yeah. 
And so I, th- I like that sort of the insistence. I am the Lord. I know what I'm doing. Right. Therefore, you better do it. Even if things seem fine right now, I'm telling you, they're not always going to be fine. And what you do now is going to determine. Is laying the course for how, it, yeah. How mm-hmm. you're going to respond mm-hmm. in crisis. Yeah. I love that. And I love that right in the middle of these two powerful memories, there's this very simple, y'all, don't mm-hmm. falsify your measures. Mm-hmm. Like, don't try to skip a couple ounces off the grain that you give someone. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, it's like really, really hyper grounded. Yeah. I love that. I love that too, Amy. I hadn't really been paying that much attention to where that little command about measures and links and volumes is. But you're right. Like, it is in the middle of a dramatic historical sweep. And it's these things that seem utterly inconsequential mm-hmm. are the things that ultimately play out in these big, big ways. Yeah. There's also something in that line about, it's a, it goes back in my mind to this thing we were talking about previously about not insulting deaf people. Mm-hmm. Because here we have a situation where people who are sojourning among you, they don't understand all the nuances of the ways that your society works. And so it would be fairly easy to cheat them. Yep. And nobody would ever be the one. Oh, my gosh. I remember traveling around Europe in college and basically just holding out a handful of money. I mean, I was so naive. (laughs) Being like, I don't know how this money works. Just take what I owe you. And I still don't know if they were. I did did not know. I would hopefully not not do that today. But it is that level of vulnerability. If you don't know the rules, you don't know the rules. Yeah. The other thing that's really important to me about this is we talked last time in Deuteronomy about how there's a concern for your own people. And that Mm -hmm. concern is also in this text, Mm -hmm. love your neighbor as Mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. But then just, you know, a few verses later in the same chapter, it flips to, and also the other people care about them too. Yeah. I don't know that that's urgently important, but I think there is sometimes a mischaracterization in Christian communities of the nature of the Hebrew text because it's about loving your own folks. Mm -hmm. And then here it is right here in this text, love people who are not your own people as well. Yeah. There is also, I've noticed this in the last few years about, I don't know, there is an argument in the Christian world about whether or not Christians should care about immigrants, (laughs) which to me is so insane. Like Mm. to me, it's like your American identity and your Christian identity bump up against each other. And what you're really asking is, do Americans need to care about immigrants? Which, I mean, fair enough. That's a fair question. Right. But if the question is, do Christians need to care about immigrants? The answer is very clearly yes. Mm-hmm. And here it is in, this, in a sacred text. And it is so ridiculous to me that that sometimes becomes a, becomes a question. Mm-hmm. So there it is. If you're supposed to love your neighbor, you're also supposed to love the foreigner. Like, there it is right there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Even if it feels like hukim, even if you don't know why you're supposed yes. to, it doesn't have to make sense to you. Oh, my goodness. We really could talk about this text forever, except we can't. We cannot. Because we're out of time. We are. So what is rising to the top for you, Dr. Williamson? I think what I'm sort of taking with me is this sense of the justice, the fairness equitability of life in community is a fragile thing that has to be guarded and protected and ensured. You've got to treat vulnerable people well. Mm -hmm. You've got to rebuke people who are privileged, who 
might be inclined to not treat vulnerable people well. You've got to remember your history, where this thing has gone awry. And so you can make sure that in time, when times are good, you act in ways that are going to carry you through when there's a crisis. All of that seems so, I mean, it just seems right Mm -hmm. and true and also really, really difficult Mm -hmm. to live out Mm -hmm. in our, in our time, maybe in all times. One of the reasons I think this text is so insistent about I am the Lord is because it was also hard to live out in the time when this text was written. This is hard. But the thing that I keep coming back to, and I've said it a number of times, is that this is all framed in be holy because I am God and I am holy. Mm -hmm. So this is not simply saying this is the way that you should live, although it is saying that, but it's saying this is the way that you should live because this is the way that God's holiness is manifested in the world. So if you do not live this way, you are insulting God publicly. You're violating the commandment that says, don't take the Lord's name in vain is what you're doing. Is because you're saying, I'm a person who belongs to God, and yet you're living your life in a way that is bringing shame to the way of life that God desires for God's people. And I mean, I don't know what motivates us, whether we're more motivated by taking care of people who need to be taken care of, Mm-hmm. Or whether we're more motivated by not shaming God in public. I don't, know. I don't know which of those things. But this text is kind of saying that's all the same thing. So whichever one of these motivates you, you need to do it. Because people are watching to see what God is like yeah. by looking at by the looking way at we, what we treat doing. our neighbor, yeah. including the foreigner and the immigrant. And so whatever your motivation is, like, be holy, be holy, because I'm holy. Yeah. What are you thinking when you look at this text? You know, I had something I was going to say, and then what you were saying changed it. So I'm gonna, so I'm gonna follow that. The word kadosh, holy, comes from a root that is it, it's related to being set apart. So you got to mm. hang in there with me for a minute, there, Bobby, because I know you don't like setting people apart. <laughs> And I, I learned it actually in the context of, of marriage. It's used for marriage. And I remember like picturing sort of like you're in a group of people, but like there's this one person who's your beloved and you can like picture this little circle yeah. around you. Like this is really where it's at. And so I feel like what this text is really wrestling with is how do we, what do we need to set ourselves apart from in yeah. order to be in this sort of imaginary circle that God is creating yeah. And I feel like this it is very easy to set ourselves up set ourselves apart from the immigrant or the foreigner or the person who is poor or or like those are the circles that are naturally drawn by our societies. It seems like in ancient times as well as now. Yeah. And this text is is like telling us to redraw the circle. Like you do yeah. actually you're it's going to be hard. You're going to have to set yourself apart from the dominant economic system or the the dominant economic impulse to worry about scarcity and care for yourself you know like yeah. all of that stuff and and when we do that we sort of enter into this circle of 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 godliness and i yeah. i know that that idea can sort of i don't know can go off the rails somewhere because it implies separation that maybe could become problematic but i think this is calling for some kind of separation. You know, yeah. we can call it separation from the empire or, se- you know, something like that. But 
that's why it's hard. Yeah. That's why it's hard. This is not, it's not, it's not the automatic thing to do. And that has me thinking too about these, you know, Hukim versus Mishpatim. And there are things that maybe laws that I intentionally don't follow now because I think they're morally offensive. Some of them are mm-hmm. in the holiness code. Yeah. And then there are also things that aren't offensive, but are really uphill. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's really an uphill battle. And so it's, I feel like this is real. This is a call to ascend the hill. Like, yeah. yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yeah. I love that, Amy. And the set apartness, like this is being set apart in a way that ensures justice for people who are not even part of the set apartness. Yes. Yes. Those who are sojourners yes. among you. Yes. And so it is not us, it is not the sort of set apartness that concerns me where we pull away and ignore everyone else. It's a set apartness that actually leads us to care for people yeah. who are beyond the bounds. Yeah. But I think you're exactly right. It, what it means to be holy in this case is to pull away from the dominant modes of conducting ourselves that are given to us by the empire and to live according to this other way that is given to us by a God who brought us out of Egypt. And that is hard and difficult and painful. And you know, people will say, well, if we don't take advantage of them, they're going to take advantage of okay. us. That's and right. I think that's exactly right. They are. They are. No, I mean, I th- I'm so glad you said that because I, th- I think that's true. Mm-hmm. And yet. <laughs> and. That's the, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what? You got to be different. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, we have one more week in the Hebrew Bible as a part of our summer series. Next time we will be reading from the book of Micah. Very different genre. We'll get a poetic, prophetic voice in the mix. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that conversation, Amy. Yeah, me too. All right. Have a great week. I'll see you next time. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagley. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest sponsors, Garrett Zatner, Meg Nichols, Mark Johnson, and Caleb Bonewell. Join us again next time as we explore Micah chapter 6, verses 7 through 15, and chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Until then, keep on digging.